Well, it is a blessing to be together tonight and uh, to come to this text in Psalm 10. As the psalmist writes this text and throughout the psalms, we, we see this I- incredible mechanism of contrast of topics. One of the main poetic devices within the psalm itself is contrast. There's kind of two primary ways that each of the two stanzas within every line of Hebrew poetry work together. One of them is that they complement one another. So the second line will say something new or extenuate and add more detail to the first. The other is by contrast. And that is when the second line is very different from the first and it provides additional amplification by saying something different. There's so many different styles within each of the psalms. There are psalms of joy, psalms of lament, psalms of prophecy, psalms of trust, psalms of hope, psalms of imprecation, psalms of prayer, just, just to name a few. And in our text from Psalm 10 tonight, we see two of these thematic elements combined into one psalm. You can turn with me, if you've not yet, in your Bibles to Psalm 10. Psalm 10 on page 556. As we mentioned two weeks ago, that is 556 in your pew Bibles, if you're using one of those, if you're like my sweet wife and her husband left her Bible at home. Um, But as we mentioned two weeks ago regarding Psalm 9, some of the ancient Hebrew manuscripts actually combine Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 into one psalm. So they became a a continuous flowing text. As we'll see, there's some strong internal evidence for this process. Now, when I say internal evidence, that means that there are details that are internal to the text that would support that idea. That is, support the idea that these psalms, Psalm 9 and Psalm 10, could well be considered as a single psalm. We also understand that this connection likely makes David our author, even though it's not stipulated in the postscript of the psalm, which is rather unusual. Most of the psalms at this section do have a a postscript to them. For instance, if we look back at Psalm 9, we would see that it says, For the choir director on Muth Leben, a psalm of David. So also in Psalm 12, For the choir director upon an eight-stringed lyre, a psalm of David. All of those postscripts are actually in the Hebrew text. Now, the titles of the psalm, such as Psalm 9, a psalm of thanksgiving for God's justice, or in my Bible, Psalm 10, a prayer for the overthrow of the wicked, these are not part of the original Hebrew text, but have been added by later Uh, translators and uh, by those who brought forward our modern versions. But the postscript is, yet interestingly, in Psalm 10, there is no postscript that might add to the thought internally that both Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 go together. Another element internally that would add to that thought is that Psalm 9 begins with hope. It begins with hope and with exaltation, and then it ends with a, an element of lament and despair over the wicked. 
Well, we get to Psalm 10, and it becomes exactly the opposite. It begins with this element of despair and discouragement. And then it will turn to a point of encouragement and of great hope and expectation. So the fact that these same two themes are evidenced in both Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 would further add to the consideration that these two would go together. So that fact of the the parallel themes, the lack of postscripts in Psalm 10, are two reasons why some have considered that this should be one psalm. Well, let's go to Psalm 10. And as we do, I want to let you know I've titled our message, From Despair to Dependence. From Despair to Dependence. Let's begin by looking at the first part of the psalm. And as we consider our title, From Despair to Dependence, our first point in the first 11 verses is a dark beginning. A dark beginning. Follow along as I read the first 11 verses of Psalm 10. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. A dark beginning indeed. The psalmist begins in the first two verses by asking the question, where is the Lord? The first stanza wonders why the Lord seems so far off in times of trouble. But now, he doesn't think the Lord is there, despite this. We see a very similar beginning in a very similar psalm, just about 12 chapters ahead, in Psalm 22, in verse 1, where we see, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very same thought concept is being brought forward. God, how can you have forgotten me in this time of greatest need? Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? The second stanza of verse 1 parallels the first. 
a literal rendering of the Hebrew at the beginning of the stanza would say, why do you have your eyes closed in times of trouble? Psalm 13 and verse 1, just a, a few pages ahead, carries the same idea. Psalm 13 and verse 1 reads, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? The psalmist cries out and says, Father, why are you afar off? Why do you not see? Why are your eyes hidden? In this my time of trouble, in this my time of great affliction. The psalmist is crying out for God to see. And we all know this cry, don't we? We have all been through times in our lives of intense difficulty. Perhaps physical suffering, spiritual suffering. And as those times come, we are tempted to cry out with the psalmist, Lord, where are you? Do you not see? Do you not know all that I'm going through? Do you not see the brokenness in my heart? Do you not understand the affliction that is coming upon me, Father? Where is my deliverance? This is the cry that the psalmist brings forward. Knowing this cry of verse 1, we likewise understand verse 2, where it says in the first stanza, In pride the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Notice the dominant offense is pride. Scripture is overflowing with warnings against pride. It is a particularly difficult sin. It is a sin that particularly affects men. Pride continues to exalt itself as men begin to think more of themselves than they ought. Psalm 73 and verse 6 also addresses the same idea of horrific pride. Psalm 73, verse 6. And listen to the keen picture that the psalmist paints. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. This is pride. It is as if it is a necklace about our neck which cannot be removed. It is a garment which shrouds us in violence. Other places in the scripture that speak about pride, and there are so very, very many. Proverbs 16, 18 is one perhaps of which we are most familiar. Solomon writes in Proverbs 16 and verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. There is a prideful element that is immediately followed by the downfall of man. And a haughtiness, another word for pride, which we will again see later in the psalm. Another place in the Proverbs, just a few chapters back in Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 2, we read, But pride comes, then comes dishonor. So there is not only the element of pride, there is not only the element of violence and this surrounding element of it, but pride brings with it dishonor. Proverbs 8 and verse 13, just uh, another couple chapters back, adds further light to this. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. 
these elements of arrogance, of evil, of a perverted mouth. All are those things that accompany pride. It's been said, and I think rightly so, in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 3, and Adam and Eve's great fall, that the main element of sin that comes forth in their fall is the sin of pride. They wanted to be like God. Satan was effective at reaching their hearts and telling them that somehow God has withheld this from you. He has not been upright with you. And he has held back the truths that he alone knows. 1 John 2, 15 and 16 so powerfully tell us about these sins of the world which we must stay away from. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. These are the things that surround men and that draw him down. The second stanza of verse 2 is also a familiar cry when people are afflicting us. It's a call for, for God to judge. As we say, let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. Father, see and catch them. Get a hold of these that are sinning. Verses 1 and 2 are the first pair in this dark beginning. As the psalmist recognizes God as the work that, in the work that he will do. And verses 3 to 4 are the second pair. In verses 3 to 4, the psalmist turns from his own persecution now to call the Lord to recognize that the attacker's opposition is not just against him, but it is against God himself. Now the personal offense is shown to be an offense against God's very righteousness. And the first stanza again shows that this stems from pride. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. So there is again this element of pride that is boasting forth the heart's desire of this wicked one. And the second stanza of verse 3 shows that this pride causes the attacker to turn from God and even to curse God. To spurn the Lord. The attacker turns from God. And then in verse 4, the second part of this pair, it shows the root cause of this action. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. The reason that this pride comes forth is there is a haughtiness in the, in the very countenance, in the very face, in the very persona of this one. He is boastful. He is arrogant. He thinks highly of himself. And this results in wickedness. He's wicked because of that pride. And he thinks that there is no God. All his thoughts in that second stanza are, there is no God. Who is it, beloved, that says that there is no God? Well, we only need, again, turn a couple chapters ahead to the 14th Psalm. Turn to the first verse of the 14th Psalm with me. Very familiar. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So the one who is now this attacker, this prideful, this haughty spirit, is also, by implication, the fool. Proverbs 14, Proverbs 15, Proverbs 17 are an excellent study. 
to recognize these components of the fool and to make certain that they do not exist in us. And I would encourage you to, to look through them, to do a study of those chapters in Proverbs. Again, Proverbs 14 and 15 and 17. And look at all that this reveals because the fool then is the one that is intimately acquainted with the one who is prideful. For us to recognize that we have this pride is a function of the fact that we think that we are something when we are nothing. Now that may sound like it is fairly self-evident, but it is connected with an element of foolishness. For we ought to all realize that nothing could be further from the truth. In verse 5, the psalmist turns to the third reason that he calls out to God. The first was the attack against himself in verses 1 and 2. The second was the attack against God himself. And now the third attack is that the attacker is being rewarded. In the first stanza of verse 5, he is rewarded. In the second stanza, it's as if God's judgment has overlooked him. And then in the third stanza, it says he snorts at his adversaries. The psalmist is crying out, saying, Father, don't you see? This one prospers in his wickedness, in his pride, in his violence, in his haughtiness. How can this be, Lord? Not only are you not seeing me, not only are you not recognizing the offense against your righteousness, but he is prospering. How can this be? And he is overwhelmed at this consideration. And this is indeed an incredible moment of great darkness. A dark beginning in a time of great despair. Verses 6 to 11 then are what Dr. MacArthur calls the representation of the hoof and mouth disease. These are the the antics of the prideful and ungodly attacker in his speech and in his actions. That is, hoof and mouth. His actions being the hoof and his speech being his mouth. The walking and talking of his life. An overview of these verses will suffice for us. As we look at at verse 6 of this text, we see that this prideful, wicked one speaks as if he's untouchable. I will not be moved. I will not be in adversity. He is as if saying, he is as if snubbing his nose at God. God, will you move me? Will you bring difficulty into my life? I think not. I have great prosperity. I do whatever I like. And he continues to exalt himself in his speech. In verse 7, out of his mouth pours vileness. Notice the connective elements that come along with this pride. Out of his mouth, which is full of curses, it is full of deceit, it is full of oppression, and under his tongue is mischief and is wickedness. There is a a vileness, there is a, a deceptiveness that comes in all that this one brings from his mouth in all of his speech. We know the contrary from Ephesians 4.29, and and it it is a verse which we all ought to have memorized and be living from day by day. Let no unwholesome word come from your mouth, 
but such that is good and edifying for the hearer. These are the things that we ought to be speaking, but no such thing is coming from this one. The pride and the self-exaltation, his wickedness and violence are bringing forth further curses, further deceit, further oppression of the weak, further ways to seek to connive and wickedness and vileness. In verse 8, his deceptive actions are brought forward for us. His lurking, his preying on the innocent, his looking for an opportunity to attack. This becomes the action of this prideful one. Incredible to see the manifestation of this as he lurks in the places of the villages in the dark corners as he hides seeking how he might kill the innocent and his eyes watching for the unfortunate looking for the one who is out by himself looking for the one that he can pounce upon and prey upon to catch the weak and the unfortunate and to draw them into his snare in verse 9 he is compared to a lion hiding until its prey is near Seeking again to lure in the weak and the afflicted and those which do not understand that there, just outside of what appears relative safety, in the tall grass lies the one who would but bring them down. A horrific consideration. All of these of that man of pride. He crouches and bows down in verse 10. And the unfortunate fall. Those who are not wary are drawn in. They do not recognize this pride. They think this one is, is right and righteous in what he proclaims. And so they are drawn into this lair. And in their weakness, they are brought down by his attacks. And in verse 11, he exalts himself, speaking even against God. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. It's interesting the prophet Micah brings up the same statement. And we see the same attitude many times in the children of Israel. Particularly at the end of their time. Just before their captivity. God is not watching. God does not care if we worship the Baals. God does not care what wickedness we bring forth. Look at he has allowed us to go on and on and on all this time. So also does this wicked one in his pride. God has hidden his face. He will never see it. What's he going to do? How's he going to touch me? It is a, a horrific situation. Indeed, a dark beginning. But praise the Lord in verse 12. Our dark beginning gives away to our second point. And that second point is an enthusiastic expectation. An enthusiastic expectation. What a joy to see the dark beginning yielding to this enthusiastic expectation in verse 12. Follow along as I read through these verses and then we'll come back and speak about them. Verse 12, arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, you will not require it. You have seen it. For you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. 
Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline their ear to vindicate the orphan and the impressed so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. The psalmist now takes his eyes off his personal despair. He takes his eyes off of his situation to realize that he must turn and look to God. He must stop focusing on the problems. He must stop focusing on his perspective of God's offense. He must stop focusing on his perspective on the wicked's prospering. No, rather, he must turn his heart fully to God and to rely upon God's word. And that's what we see begin in verse 12. Verse 12 begins with the battle cry which we saw first as Moses' battle cry back in Numbers 10 and verse 35. And that beautiful text in Numbers chapter 10 becomes Moses' cry to bring the children of Israel to battle. It says in Numbers 10 and 35, Then it came about when the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. And let those who hate you Flee before you. And when it came to rest, he said, Return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. As the Israelites prepared to depart from Mount Sinai, after all that had gone on, after God had made the covenant with them, Moses had gone up on the hill for 40 days and 40 nights. And in that time, the children of Israel had totally fallen apart. They cried out to Aaron to make them a golden calf. So he called for all of their gold jewelry and he melted it down. And he creates this calf which they are to worship. And of course we know all of the details that happen surrounding that. And God is merciful through Moses' intercession. And now as they finally are prepared to go. And God, keep in mind just before this, has said, Moses, you go. I cannot bear with this obstinate and hard-headed people. And Moses said, Then, Father, just kill me, for I will not go if you will not go before us. And now God agrees. And as God prepares to send them out, and as the Shekinah glory lifts above the tabernacle, and the Levites prepare and break down the tabernacle in the wilderness to move forward, and Moses cries out to God and says, Rise up, O Lord this is the psalmist's cry as well. Rise up, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. When we see God's hand described in Scripture, it is most often an indication of his judgment. Isaiah particularly will speak of God's hand or his arm, his outstretched arm. And continually through the book of Isaiah, there is that metaphor that God's outstretched arm is his arm of judgment that is not too short to stretch out and to touch all who would be in disobedience to him. So he proclaims in such beautiful fashion, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Now the psalmist recognizes he must rely upon God 
the God who he knows will never forget the afflicted, who continues to bring glory and to bring provision. That's what we just read a little earlier in Psalm chapter 9 and verse 12. Psalm 9:12 says, For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Reminds us of this glorious truth of God's provision to those who are the downtrodden. And then in verse 13, he again reflects on the hoof and mouth disease above, where he says, Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, you will not require it. It is as if he is asking himself again to remind himself that this is not his question to ask. That this is God who must answer and deal with this wicked one. For he cannot. Only God can bring restoration. Only God can bring justice to this one who is in defiance. Then in verse 14, he again turns to trust in God in his righteousness. In the first stanza, he understands God's omniscience. He says, you have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. He knows that God understands, and he relies upon that. It's not for me to try and inform you as I did in the beginning of this. That is of no value. You know, Father, and I have to leave that with you. It is not for me to inform you. For you are fully aware. So I must simply trust in you. The next two stanzas show that not only does God know, but he cares. The unfortunate commit himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. This is a, a constant theme throughout scripture. We go back to the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 8. As Moses recounts the seven, second giving of the law to the children of Israel. And in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 18. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow. And shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. God did not turn away the alien that was not of the children of Israel. He did not give them an inheritance like he does in Ezekiel in the millennial kingdom. But he allows him benefit. He allows him blessing. God seeks out the orphan and the widow to care for them. What a beautiful picture we have, not just in the beginning of the Old Testament, but all the way into the New Testament, into the wonderful book of James. James 1, 27. Such a glorious verse that tells us in James 1 and 27, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. I, I just have to tell you as a little aside, I am so excited about the ministry that our deacons have been launching forward on in making certain that they are caring for our widows, caring for our homebound, caring for for our couples who are ministering one to another, and our seniors as well. And this is a beautiful picture of exactly what Scripture calls us to. And these men, their hearts desiring to fulfill God's Word and to care for the most needy in our church are pursuing that very end. And it is a glorious picture indeed. In verse 15, 
he turns and the psalmist recognizes God as the just judge. He has, he has changed his focus. He has called God to arise and come forth, recognizing that only God can do anything. He has recognized that God will not forget the afflicted and that he cannot ask about this one and his unrighteousness. And now in verse 15, he turns and he recognizes God as the ultimate judge. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Take the one father who is outdoing these deeds with his arms and break those arms. You know, it's it just, we had uh, a, a lady in, uh, in California who had been, uh, she was just a, a wonderful servant of the Lord and had been running and doing all these errands and she usually was one of these gals, and you know a gal like this, who just goes about 110 miles an hour everywhere she goes, just go, 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 go. And she had been carrying these books and she was running and she fell and she broke both arms and both bones. I mean, how debilitating is that? Right? You, you just, everything. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, everything in life. I mean, how am I going to eat? How am I going to do e every particular thing? And this is the psalmist cry here against the wicked. As they go forward and as they execute these deeds with their arms, Father, break their arms. Keep them from this wickedness. Bring your justice upon these evildoers. And continue, Father, as the second stanza says, seek out the wickedness until you find none. Until there is no more of this wickedness ongoing. Judge them, Father, and bring them forward. After recognizing God as the judge in verse 16, he recognizes God as the sovereign king. The Lord is king forever and ever. La olam, la olam. The, the greatest length of time that the Hebrew language is able to express until the eternity of eternities, literally. Till there is nothing to withhold that you are king, that you are sovereign, that you are God who is over all for all time. It is you, God, who is ruling all things. And he's saying, it is you who does as you pleases. And as you do so, you do so in perfection. We understand how critical this is. And the second stanza says, nations have perished from his land. God in his sovereignty has removed all of the Canaanite, the Hivite, the Girgashite, the Hittite, the Amorite. All of them, the Canaanite, have all been removed from the land of Israel, by God's hand. Full nations have been brought under this judgment. God is the one who is king, and none ought be questioning it. We know what happens for those who question God's actions and his sovereignty. A quick stroll through the book of Job will show us that it's a really bad idea in times of intense affliction to question God. Because even when we are downtrodden and we are struggling in ways that likely none of us will ever understand as Job did, and yet we would bring question to God and we would call ourselves out as righteous and call God into question, bring some very severe consequences as Job 38 to 42 reveal. And we see what happens after about three chapters of Job being in the woodshed with the Lord. And he finally speaks. 
I have spoke once, and I will not speak again. I will put my hand over my mouth, and I will repent in sackcloth and ashes. For now my eyes have seen the living God. His sovereignty, his judgment. And not only is he his king, as we've seen, he is executioner. Verses 7 and 18 return to the climax of this enthusiastic exaltation where the psalmist says, O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble, the absolute opposite of pride. You've heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the impressed so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. Now we've seen an absolute reversal from the beginning of the darkness that was brought forward in this text, that dark beginning, we've seen this enthusiastic exaltation come forward. The question that we understand and the picture that's painted for us here, beloved, it is not as if David, who lived uh, around the, the turn of the first century B.C., 3,000 years ago, wrote some poetry that is detached and unassociated. But it's as if David sat in, in your kitchen. It's as if David sat in our congregation and he writes about the affliction and the trouble that comes to the church and into our lives. And what we recognize and, and, and what we must bring to our thoughts is the parallel between Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. Psalm 9 began with that hope. It began with that exaltation. And yet then it went into this dark place. And it stayed there as it transitioned into Psalm 10, finally to come back again. But this can be us too, can it not? We can be as the psalmist was, well taught, well schooled, well understanding the things of God. David, the one after the Lord's own heart, recognized the glories and excellencies of God and proclaims them in Psalm 9, almost through the entire text. And then he begins to spiral down. We too can begin to spiral down. We can begin to take our eyes off of the Lord and the circumstances around us can be too much. And as we see wickedness, as we see evil, as we see pride, we are drawn in and we begin to focus on our circumstances and we can't get past the vision of six inches in front of our face. We must remove that thought. We must again recognize and we must again turn to God and to his word. Turn to the things that we know of God. The just judge. The king who lives forever. The executioner and the one who will bring about justice. The one who is concerned about the afflicted. The one who will reward the humble. And we must realize that has to be our perspective. We cannot allow ourselves to dwell and to wallow as David did on the darkness and the sickness and the pride and the wickedness of those about him. For only God can do anything about them. We only have one thing that we can do, beloved. We can turn our eyes upon Jesus. As that beautiful song says, to look full in his wonderful face. 
That has to be our response. That has to be how we live every day. We have to wake up tomorrow and forget that anything happened in this day and look ahead to what God will do. To look ahead to Christ. To look ahead to what Jesus will lay out for you tomorrow, Monday, Labor Day, and the places he will take you and the opportunities that you will have to trust in him, to reflect upon him, to proclaim him. This is where our eyes must be. Calling out to God to arise. Calling out to realize that He is our unswerving hope. That He is our rock and our foundation. And nothing is going to move Him. We move everywhere. We can be tossed here to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by every wind of difficulty, by every affliction and difficulty that life brings. But not our Father, not our Savior. And we know that because His Spirit dwells in us and we must continue to rely upon this, beloved. Now this is, this is not just a beautiful psalm written 3,000 years ago. This is a reflection of a man or a woman at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church. A reflection of a love story that we must have. Realizing the faithfulness of our God and His joy in bringing about all of these things. And to realize that as despair comes in our lives, our proper response is dependence. Not self-sufficiency, not John Wayne grabbing yourself by the bootstraps and getting up and getting going and getting back on the horse when you get bucked off. No, it's turning to God. It's turning to Him in full reliance and realizing He's got it all, even when we have nothing. And oftentimes, it's when we truly have nothing that we are in the best place we can be because we know that He has and desires to give us all things, for He has in His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.